We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome back to Turpentine VC, a podcast where we discuss the art and science of building successful venture firms, VC to VC. For today's episode, we have Finn Barnes. Finn co-founded the general partnership with Dan Portillo of Sweat Equity Ventures and was previously a longtime partner at First Round Capital. We discuss Finn's idea of building a YC for emerging fund managers, the Sweat Equity model, building the general partnership, incubation at the general partnership, how to think about starting a venture firm in 2024, building a talent flywheel, and much more. Here's our conversation. Finn, welcome to Turpentine VC. Thanks for joining. No, really, really awesome to, to hang out and get a chance to talk to you and, uh, you know, explore sort of the way, the ways that firms are built. It's, uh, it's a topic of sort of personal passion. Totally. We, we had on um, the Village Global podcast, you, you and Brett came on a few years ago and gave a deep dive into, into how first round uh, operates. You, of course, at first round for, for, you know, approximately a decade. Um, walk us through when you left first round, uh, given where the market was, what was your journey for thinking through how you wanted to engage in venture a- a- after that? Where, where was the opportunity? What you personally enjoyed? Because a lot of people do. They leave a firm, me included, right? And they say, hey, do I want to start a new firm? Do I want to join a firm? If I do start a firm, you know, what's the market like? What's the opportunity? It's a crowded ecosystem. So, so take us, take us down that path. It was a lot of, a lot of soul searching, probably some COVID induced navel gazing, but, but a lot of soul searching around how to practice venture. And, and so for me, the, there were some core things that I knew I wanted to do as a venture capitalist and that were really important. So at the time, the most obvious thing to do was to be a solo capitalist. That was sort of the obvious thing in, in 2020, 2021, raise a fund, be a solo capitalist. Uh, but I have a huge uh, emphasis and a tremendous amount of care and I gain a lot of energy from teamwork. And so for me, having a team was really important. Um, another thing that was really important was the ability to work really, really deeply with a smaller number of founders uh, as, as a GP and really partner with them in the truest sense, sort of the way, you know, a benchmark or, or, or others will talk about the, the sense of partnership they have with their founders. So being able to be actively involved um, and deeply influential in that founder's process and supporting them in, in ways that are, are really meaningful in those critical inflection moments. Uh, and then, and then another piece was being able to have real impact on that founder's business and recognizing that most of the time, my answer is not the right answer. Like I'm not the best recruiter. I'm not an engineer. I'm not technical. Um, I've sold things in the past, but they were sneakers, not software. And so I don't, I don't have a, a sense of, you know, selling SaaS software at enterprise, et cetera. Uh, and so oftentimes my advice outside of timing and, process for fundraising is a process of pulling out the founder's best answer. Like I'm a firm believer that the best answer to any question facing a company is, is inside the founder. And the job of the best investor is to bring that out and to build the relationship and trust such that 
the founder knows that when you say something, whether you're pushing them or you're debating or you're agreeing and amplifying something they're saying, you're doing it with the best interest of the company in mind. And with that trust, then what you say is, is more likely heard the way you intended it. And it more likely motivates that founder to discover their best answer and, and take that action. But that's not enough. Like the very best founders need hands-on operational help. And I think they, they tend to get it from lots of places, but they, all the best founders surround themselves with unbelievable builders, deeply experienced people who can come in and own a piece of what needs to get done at the company and accelerate that company, um, have that company build at higher quality and especially early establish that critical DNA that, that leads to enduring businesses. And so I wanted to find a way to, to do that. Uh, and, and so all of those things were jumbling around in my head. I was doing some angel investing, um, did some investing in, in funds, um, you know, early funds. And I, and I talked to a lot of friends in the industry. I'm, you know, lucky enough to have had a long enough career to have built, um, a lot of deep relationships across the industry, successful GPs, uh, operating in all different styles. And so I spent a lot of time, I wouldn't call it a listening tour because I was, I was sort of more just meeting with friends, but spent a lot of time, uh, learning about, what worked for them? What motivated them? What aspects of their firm did they love? What aspects did they, did they have challenges with? And then trying to map that to what I knew about them from a personality perspective. And along the way, one of the people that reached out is someone I've had deep respect for, for a long, long time was Dan Portillo, who was at the time it was sweat equity ventures. And, and then over a 18 month period that we could get into, it became just very clear that like, this was the thing that, that I needed to go do. And that there was this massive opportunity um, to to innovate within the venture capital business, and therefore to unlock uh, a whole new product that that was impossible to deliver with the traditional business model of venture. Let's get into those eighteen months a little bit. Or, or how did you sort of think about what business model innovation was possible or needed within venture? There were a bunch of different places. So I think the there was some stuff around. Um, the LP VC relationship that I got really interested in, particularly around large endowments being able to invest in micro funds and to do that in a way that worked for them. Um, and to, to avoid the need for, you know, the largest endowments to have to write a hundred million dollar check or a $500 million check in order for it to be meaningful, but to be able to potentially aggregate, you know, a large group of small funds and allow for the multiples that you tend to get on those funds to flow back up to the largest LPs. So I spent a lot of time exploring that. Um, I spent a lot of time exploring the benchmark model and I'm friends with, with Chris and Jordan at, at Pace. And, you know, we spent a lot of time talking about sort of the, where benchmark is today and, and how that culture works. And then it's different to start it than it is to, to live in it, you know, later. And, and so what are the lessons you can take away? And, what are the things that you would do maybe differently? And so that was, that was really interesting. I think there's, there's a very powerful, uh, aspect to the, the equal partnership is how they talk about it, both pace and benchmark. But I think the, the general sense of everyone who works at the firm being an owner was what I pulled away from that, which is not the case at the vast majority of venture firms. And so I think when you can have that ownership mentality, that flows through to every interaction with every founder and, and it's really meaningful. And so I, I think that became a core tenant in, in, in the exploration. Um, and then I think the last part was the, the diversity of thought and that coming from diverse experience and expertise and being able to create a culture where 
everyone respects the strengths of the others and, and there is no greater honor than amplifying those strengths for a partner um, rather than sort of the, what you hear at some firms is, you know, the, the individual activity and then pound the table and get things done. And you check the scoreboard, you know, five years later, 10 years later and, and see what happened. And, and so I wanted to, to avoid that. So there was, the, I would say the majority of the learning was around culture and how to build the culture of a firm and, and the things that would resonate with me. And that I felt would lead to um, the very best product for founders. And that was always my orientation is like, what, what do founders want? How do we build the best product for them? And, and I think marrying culture with the very best product for founders is really critical. And that was a big piece of the, you know, if you call it a listening tour, that was a big piece of those 18 months as well was angel investing in founders, um, but also spending a lot of time with founders that I had had the fortune to partner with that first round. So whether that's, you know, the Ivans and, and Akshay's of the world at Notion or, or Rick at Persona, um, Afton at Modern Fertility was amazing during this time, just giving me feedback around how to think about things. And so going through that, that work with the founders, um, Taha from NimbleRx was also amazing. And, and them giving me feedback on where I had been really impactful to them uh, and, and how they saw me and the shape or structure I should build around myself to amplify my strengths and do the work that I love to do. And so that reflection uh, with the founders was really powerful as well. Yeah. And so before we get into sweat equity, say a little bit more about the LP micro fund um, sort of opportunity. Is, is the idea sort of building like a YC for for emerging managers where you, you help aggregate or you know pick the best ones, maybe get some special economics in exchange for helping them, you know, really, really raise? Um, or, or what did you see as the opportunity? And is, is that still an unsolved problem for, for those entrepreneurial people out there uh, listening? I think it is an unsolved problem. Like I think there are there are many, many people who have far more talent and as investors, then they have access to capital and they, they're amazing people that I will talk to them and they're sort of struggling to raise a $10 million fund or something. And, and my belief is they will generate amazing multiples on that $10 million. The, the question is that amazing multiple doesn't matter if you have a $50 billion endowment because the, the denominator problem. And so I think the, it is an unsolved problem. I think finding a way to navigate uh, a an investment size that puts people in business in a real way, and and so I went to the to the full degree of kind of all the capital comes from from one LP effectively, but all the economics you try to maximize how how what percentage of the economics flow through to the founder of that fund, and the idea was to figure that out, and that's the part where it's challenging. It's a run a business that can, can do this. But if you could figure that out, you could put people in business. You could find ways to help them reduce friction in that process. Obviously, fundraising, but also fund administration, all those things allow them to purely focus on the investing work that they want to do, build a track record, and then make sure that track record is transparent to the large endowments that are the, the flow through, you know, LPs so that when that person, if and when they want to scale their fund, they can then go direct to those LPs with a track record that they've built over, you know, three, five, 10 years and, and have the opportunity to scale and have that relationship already in place. That was what I was trying to work on where I ended up was two things. One, I do believe it's a good idea. I think probably to make the economics work in a way that aligns everybody's interests, a single large LP has to step up and say, we are doing this. Like we're going to, we're going to hire someone who can pick, these micromanagers, and we are going to have a process of putting people in business and we are going to allocate 
you know, X hundreds of millions of dollars every, every year, every, every cycle to do that. Just because the, the middleman problem is significant and the very best, you know, you have adverse selection in some ways as you take more economics, same as incubation, which we can get to. And so, so I, I struggle with that. But then the more important part for me personally, because uh, I think that's a solvable problem. The, the more important part was in my own work, I love the GPs that I invested in personally, and I love the founders that I angel invested in. They're wonderful people. They, they, you know, I, I get a lot of energy from talking to them. But I have to admit, my fifth conversation about like reserve strategy <laughs> or fundraising, talking to LPs, um, was relatively draining compared to my hundredth conversation about you know who to hire, you know how to think about that initial product, how to judge whether pull from a customer is actually product market fit or 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 not. Is it false positive, all the things that early founders have to navigate uh, and and helping folks grow as CEOs. And, and I think that that opportunity to coach founders and help them grow as CEOs is like the personal passion that I have. And so I was talking with, with someone who's now um, one of our largest LPs and um, he's known me for a very long time. And he, his, his, the short sentence that I remember is, you know, these are both great ideas, but you should do the second thing because like you don't, this is not for you. It's like, it's a great idea, but you shouldn't do it <laughs> was kind of what he said. And, and he was right. He was right. Totally. Well said. So let's get into the sweat equity op- opportunity to talk about what you saw over the past 18 months that made you sort of fall in love with the, with the product or to get into what the product is and, and how, how it's evolved. Sure. So first my partner, Dan is the best recruiter in Silicon Valley by far. And so while I thought we were having a conversation as friends and I'm kind of had some extra cycles and I could help him figure out how to add some, some scale of capital to the model that he had been working on since 2018. Um, he was definitely recruiting <laughs> and it's an honor for me to say that because he, he recruits unbelievable people. And if I look across our team to be in that group, uh, that, that he felt could contribute to what he had built at sweat equity, is something that I'm, I'm really grateful for and, and to have earned that is, is meaningful to me. And, and so he reached out and kind of said, yeah, I saw you want to build again and love to talk to you about what you want to do, but really I'd love your advice on, on how to add some scale of capital to what I'm doing. And so I had been familiar with the model. Uh, Dan and I had sort of been kindred spirits in venture since probably 2014. He was at Greylock. Uh, he was the first head of talent, you know, when Andreessen launched and most VC firms had their kind of oh shit moment of like, oh wait, we need to do more than just kind of meet people and write checks. Greylock pulled Dan in and, and said, yeah, we want to have a talent function and we want you to run it. And he did an amazing job uh, delivering for companies, but also, and these were the parts that I really admired the most, figuring out ways to play the network game that VCs live on. Like that is the currency. He played that just in a very different way and at another level. Like I think in general, everybody was playing checkers and, and Dan was playing three-dimensional chess around how to think about networks. And he was the he was the first person to figure out kind of small groups of amazing people and bringing them together is just this really powerful nucleus that then leads to increased network in specific areas of interest uh, from an investment perspective. He he was very clear with the the partnership at Greylock that he wanted to build these communities around design and you know, enterprise security and, and some open source projects, et cetera. But he was also very clear that he was going to get the best people in the room. And so that would probably mean sometimes it wasn't folks from the Greylock portfolio and that had to be okay. It would be a mix. Like there would be people from inside the portfolio who are amazing, but there would also be places where the portfolio person didn't make the cut and you had to bring in the best person from another company. 
And I think that the willingness to do that led to these really powerful communities that he built across these different areas. Uh, we overlapped because one of them was Greylock U and I was building Dormer Fund for first round. Um, he did the design community and I was working on design plus startup um, in partnership with IDEO. So we had a lot of overlap and, and sort of um, same views of the market uh, way back then. And then in, in 2018, uh, Dan decided to step away from Greylock, um, left them in a really great spot and hired his replacement, et cetera. Um, I think the work he had done there led to something like 17 investments that the firm did. So he was really a major contributor, but he decided he wanted to try something new. And I think he was feeling much of the same things that I was feeling in the market as it was accelerating and, and, and all the changes that we've seen in the sort of industrial revolution of venture capital kind of between 2012 and, and uh, 2022. Uh, but he did something, he had the courage to do something about it. Uh, whereas I kept thinking about it. And so in 2018, he stepped away from Greylock. He, he went to Reed Hoffman and the initial idea was this business model innovation. You know, venture has gone through, you know, the product of venture capital has gone through tremendous evolution from the days when, you know, Arthur Rock, if you want to go back that far, or even sort of the beginning of modern venture with Don Valentine jumping into hot tubs with Nolan Bushnell to win the right to invest in, in Atari and, and to partner uh, in that way. You know, venture, that product is very, very different than the, than the product that most venture firms offer uh, today. And, and there are some exceptions, obviously. And we talked about benchmark and pace sort of taking an old school approach. Um, but, but Dan's view was the, while the product had evolved over time and it had grown in certain ways and had, had evolved, um, the, the business model was still the same. And, and so the business model of, of fee plus carry, works really, really well to sustain a small group of people who collaborate and focus deeply on making investments, partnering with a few founders every year, and then sharing in the upside that those founders generate in terms of returns and then flow, you know, flows back to LPs. The challenge is when you start adding a recruiter, you know, engineering support, if you have it, sales support, an enterprise briefing center, like all of these things that have kind of grown and, and the factory of venture starts getting created and you're putting up smokestacks and all these other things, the, the thing that you have to do is you have to do all of that building within the construct of a fee base. And no matter how big your fund is, you know, your fee base is never big enough to cover kind of the product delivery that founders want as the portfolio scales. And so as any good business person, you're, you're, you're managing a cost center. And when you manage a cost center, what you try to do is minimize that cost. And then you try to amortize it across as many customers as you can. And so what founders end up with is increasingly junior people who are paying increasingly fractionalized attention to the founder's most critical needs. And as a firm, what these firms do, the, the large platform firms, and I think everyone who's added these services, um, what they're trying to do is you'll hear things like scalability, um, productization of, of the support services, make it repeatable. And those are all things that are great in an effort to scale a firm. But I think they're actually counter to what the customer needs and what the founders need, because the more you make something repeatable, the more scalable it is, the more brittle that product is and the more fixed it is. And so there is a certain way that you can deliver connections to customers at scale. There's a certain way you can deliver recruiting at scale. And the more you push on scale, the narrower that value proposition gets. 
And the more it becomes a piece of a playbook, which we hear about a lot, the thing I'm most interested in is not so much the assembly line, meaning firm to firm to firm, but the assembly line within a given firm about this is how you build a company at this stage. Let's make all our companies build exactly the same way. Let's find those commonalities. And then we can build one product to serve many. The challenge is your customer, especially your best customers, which you don't know at the time, but you know, 10 years later, you find out. One, they're idiosyncratic. So put 10 founders in the room and I'll show you 10 very, very different people with 10 very different theories about how to build companies, with 10 very different theories on markets, different styles of engagement, you know, on and on and on. They're all very different. And then not only is each individual customer different, so you have an idiosyncratic customer base, each one of them is incredibly dynamic. So what that unique Snowflake founder needs on day one is entirely different than what they need on month 12. And so the idea that you could build a single product that would be able to serve this idiosyncratic customer base, particularly as portfolio scale. So you're not talking about 10, you're talking about hundreds of people. Um, and then also continue to serve them with equal value contribution as the, as the company grows and its needs change. And particularly early as it zigs and zags through the market and looks for product market fit, it just seems impossible. It's like a fool's errand. The best founders, they surround themselves with incredibly senior people with domain expertise in a critical area of challenge that the founder is facing at that time and who have the ability to spend real one-on-one time with that founder in high context engagement and support and oftentimes building shoulder to shoulder with that founder, right? And that is something that doesn't scale, but when you can deliver it, the impact is unbelievable. Uh, And I think there are many ways that venture firms can get around delivering product in that way, that service delivery model. Um, You know, Benchmark will make one to two investments a year. That's the way they solve the problem is they say it doesn't scale and neither do we. And I think that that's that's a a singular approach. Um, But I would also say that the unbundling of the GP in some ways, you know, the the bet that the very best recruiter is a better recruiter than Eric Vischer is as a recruiter. Like I tend to take that bet. And and, and maybe that's something I, I know about myself. And so I shouldn't say Eric, I say me, like the best recruiter is a better recruiter than I am. Um, and, and even if I had time to work on it, I wouldn't be as good as some of the folks on our team or, or others in the industry. And so I do think there's power in the unbundling, but you have to marry that power of unbundling with the ability to take that focus and those, those domain expertise and deploy them one-to-one. And that one-to-one relationship between founder and support and help and partnership is the real key. And so the, the sweat equity model of, of shifting what is a cost center for everybody else to a revenue center for us, meaning we do that work in exchange for equity, unlocks the ability to deliver this very different product. Because when you, when you place that person inside that company to work with the founder one-to-one for 12 months, there's a cost to that, that we pay with cash, but we're rewarded for that. We are paid by the founder in equity, which is actually, in our view, a more valuable you know, currency. And so the business model shift that Dan created and that Reed invested in order to support him in, in exploring the product market fit that he found, um, you know, those are the things that, that drew me to, to the sweat equity model. As I just, I'd seen, uh, I'd seen so many times where a business model innovation unlocked product innovation and therefore you could serve the customer better. Um, I can give you, give you company examples of that, but I think, um, you know, it, it really shone through in, in sort of talking to the founders Dan had partnered with at SEV talking to the builders on our team and why they work there and the work they get to do and why it's the most interesting work in the world. 
um, and, and sort of why they choose to do that versus anything else. Um, all of these conversations sort of led me to a place where I believed in the model. And then the only question was, how big a fund should we raise? Which areas of focus should we have? And then who are the LPs that are going to believe in this vision with us and allow us to explore, um, you know, wh what is this business model innovation unlock uh, for the general partnership over multiple decades? Yeah, that's a great setup. Let's get in the weeds here. So what I understand as an outsider is Sweat Equity Ventures started as a, uh, you know, sort of true to the sweat equity model, they would do recruiting services in exchange for, for some equity or sort of some payment. And they, you know, probably make some small investments in, in some of the companies or alongside them. And when you came sort of the institutionalized and, and, and raised a fund, we'll get into the size and the strategy in, in a minute. Um, and then combined the special recruiting services with, with investing to, to maybe either get special terms or just win in competitive deals. And maybe you're providing some other services as well. Why don't you get in the weeds of exactly what the, what the product and offering is? Sure. So the, the sweat equity model, it started as recruiting because that's Dan's unique expertise, but it pretty quickly evolved to the three things you need to build an amazing company and enduring business. So you need a great team first. I think that's first and foremost. You need that talent gravity around your business. And so we have recruiting for that. Um, you also need to build a great product and the earlier you can build a great product and the better your product creation process is, the more likely it is that you find product market fit. And so we built out a product and engineering team that, that can embed with technical founders to help them build faster, um, and, and at better scale and, and higher velocity. Um, and then a go to market team. So you need, you need leverage distribution uh, of the product that you build. And that go-to-market team uh, really focuses on enterprise sales as well as sort of a higher velocity sales motion SMB and helps these founders get their product in front of customers, go from, you know, proof of concept or design partnerships with no revenue to five, six, seven figure uh, long-term contracts uh, with large customers and, and does that in a one-to-one in -one basis. So those are the three pillars. And then as we transition to the GP, uh, we added a fourth pillar, which is the commodity pillar, which is capital. Um, and everyone's capital is the same. And, and so, but it is a necessary fuel to, to build companies. And so today the general partnership has four products. Uh, it has the, the talent, those are the people side, product and engineering, and then go to market and then capital. And it's an unbundled offering. We trust founders to come to us with their unique challenges and needs and to identify where we can support them uh, in, in a way that's not available in the market and that will benefit the company um, in, in a unique way. And then we partner with them. Uh, and as we do that, we, we take our staff, we collaborate with the founders, we build the company with them in, in deep partnership. Uh, and, and that sort of product is documented in a written statement of work where as we kick off the partnership, we sit with the founder, we talk through the things they want to accomplish, where they believe we can be high leverage and most impactful, the roles and jobs they want us to take on, uh, how long it will take for us to deliver against those milestones, and then uh, an amount of equity that we would acquire in exchange for that. And then that equity vests across the period of delivery so that if after six months we're not delivering, the founder can fire us and the equity, the remaining equity doesn't vest. Hey, we'll continue our interview in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. 
In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography, founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. Say more about how you thought about the fund size, exact portfolio construction, um, and and yeah, from there. So the the fund size was sort of driven by uh, the the customer, <laughs> the founders. And so what we did was we actually did it bottoms up. Uh, Dan and I, neither of us have sort of an AUM aspiration. We don't really care about managing billions of dollars versus managing hundreds of millions. It's not the interesting part. It's not the the motivation. I think for us, the motivation is we both believe deep deeply that this business model innovation creates opportunity. And so how do we maximize that opportunity for for ourselves? our LPs and everyone who, who works and owns um, the piece of the GP. And so we started with, with the looking at the portfolio that SCV had put together. I think it was, if I'm remembering right, I think it's 46 companies total, maybe 47. And in looking at that uh, and, and some of those have been very successful, both companies and engagements. And some of them have been less successful engagements, things that had put stress on the organization, otherwise delivery had been challenging. And, and in looking at that, this is when I was sort of thinking of myself as a consultant to Dan rather than a potential partner. <laughs> so I could be very blunt. There was no uh, pulling punches. And it just became very clear that the benefit of this product as it currently was built was bimodal. And at the very early stage, the ability to take a founder with a unique vision, technical co-founders who could go build the product and amplify their strengths with top engineers and, 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 you know, our engineering team is folks who have been, they've built their own companies. Those companies were acquired into web scale businesses, and then they ran large pieces of infrastructure in or products inside of those companies. And so they've seen the operations of, you know, technology built at all, at all scale. Um, and they understand how to do that, but pairing them with, with these founders, co-founders to amplify their strengths help them find that product market fit faster through more effective iteration, a little bit of direction around how to think about the feedback coming back from the market, et cetera. Um, you know, tremendously powerful marrying that with customer insight. So being able to then go talk to folks earlier than maybe you would have otherwise being able to frame those conversations to get the most out of them, to bring the data back uh, to the company, to then apply the founder's judgment to how to interpret that I think is really valuable. And then Building teams, obviously, is a big piece of, of early days in a company. But I think in particular, building teams where the founder now has context and a reference point for what world-class looks like, it means that they can be much more discerning. And because our teams all work together, when our recruiters go to work, they're not only talking to the founder about their product roadmap and how that aligns with their hiring needs and then building out their you know candidate funnels and calibration, et cetera. They're also spending time with the engineering folks who are working with that founder. They're spending time with the product leads and designers that are working with that founder. They're spending time with the sales folks that are working with that founder to understand much more deeply about the market, about the culture, about the way the founder leads, and then therefore identify folks that will be successful in that environment. That's much more impactful. And so those are, those are sort of the ways that we 
think about engaging early and the impact on sort of establishing that DNA of the company is, is really significant. Um, helping the founders to map and build the business that they want, um, being able to help them achieve that vision early and establish a durable DNA of that company that they can take forward to, you know, sort of the, the scale that, that they ultimately achieve. Um, and then capital, I think, you know, obviously you augment those, those services with capital, you know, it's great to have recruiters, but if you can't pay your candidates, it doesn't matter. And so, so we have capital there and, and we can lead uh, early stage rounds, you know, anywhere from writing one to four or five million dollar checks um, and, and leading leading those rounds um, and, and, you know, in that deep partnership with founders. And then the other place where it was really impactful is actually post product market fit. So founders work and work and work and find product market fit. Then the company starts to scale and that product market fit oftentimes starts to pull the company apart or at least have it start fraying at the seams. And in those moments, what founders often need is support, not capital. Because any, any company at that stage, particularly over the last 10 years, but I think in general, in any market, the very best companies that are experiencing explosive growth, they have plenty of access to capital. They probably have a pretty large balance sheet. And the job of the founder is to turn that capital into enterprise value. And so we can come in uh, at that stage with services first and engage across, you know, some, sometimes it's recruiting where you, know, you need to hire your first you know, head of sales. And then our go-to-market team can engage in that transition from founder-led sales to salespeople-led sales and how to set that up. And then we can recruit that first set of sales. We've seen you know, other executive hiring is, is a pretty obvious one. There's been places where founders want to be able to parallel process paying off technical debt, as well as continuing to add features and deliver against product. And we can step in with engineering support to get that done. And you know, on day zero, you know, scale their team such that they can now parallel process versus the six months it would take them to recruit and then therefore be able to parallel process at which point they've fallen behind um, the market opportunity. And so we're able to do that, engage for services, build a relationship with the founder, understand the way they lead, understand their business, but also have them understand us and how we work, the way we think about building durable businesses um, and winning in the markets that, that they're in. And then we can deepen that partnership with capital investments, sort of the you know seven to fifteen million dollar investments into those later stage companies, either as an extension of the round that that recently occurred, or we can wait until another round comes together, and then we can earn our position on that cap table through the work we've done, um, and be able to write a, a second check, um, you know, into that. We're not leading those rounds, but be able to participate in a meaningful way. And you know, with our fund size, um, our belief is that those investments can drive meaningful returns to the fund just based on cash on cash multiple, not worrying about sort of ownership as a, as a metric. Well said, talk more about how you think about unbundling the the GP in terms of either what you're doing to date or what you aim to do in the future of, of, or what exactly that, that might look like for, for sweat equity beyond what you've said so far. Yeah. So I think the, again, it's, it's customer led. So, so there's, we do believe these three pillars of, of operational excellence represent the three things you need in order to, to win as a company. I think right now, for example, in go-to-market, we're starting to hear requests for marketing, positioning, product-led growth type support, and we don't currently have that. And so that might be something that we would think about you know, adding. Uh, but again, it's, it's in service of those founders. And I think the nice thing about our model is we can, we can make a hire. We can find someone amazing. So we have the best recruiters in the world, so we can pull them in and then we can see if they can do work in exchange for equity. And many of the folks that we recruit into these positions are active as advisors or angels. They, they're already being compensated with, with equity for their brain and their experience and, and their ability to engage with founders. And so we just institutionalize that. 
And so I think we'll follow the founders in terms of their needs. Um, I don't think you'll see us buying like racks of GPUs and, and that sort of stuff, but I think, I think we'll follow the founders around their operational needs um, and where we think we can access a unique, unique network of people where we can build a team that founders couldn't otherwise access outside of those folks being their co-founders or, you know, sort of being pulled in and in some massive advisory relationship and, and be able to bring that resource to bear uh, for, you know, unbelievable founders who are making a choice to build their company in a different way than the traditional venture path. And I think that's, that's the critical piece is, is, you know, a long time ago, I think Don Valentine had a thing that was like one of the qualifications for Sequoia investing was the founder had to be proactive about like looking for and open to their active involvement, right? Sequoia's active involvement in that company building. And I think we're, we're saying the same thing, maybe in a little different flavor, but the idea that, we want founders who are learned it alls, you know, not know it alls. We want people who they have a North star, they have tremendous urgency to get there and they will literally do anything to create an advantage for themselves. And that includes engaging with us and the folks on our team to add talent gravity to their business and recognizing that, that the nice thing about talent gravity is a sort of a flywheel. So one of our folks goes in that up levels, the entire team or that function. Then when you're recruiting, the candidates are evaluating your team and they're evaluating your process and they're seeing world-class. And when they see that, the quality of candidate you can acquire goes up. Um, those candidates have amazing networks and now all of a sudden you've got this talent flywheel spinning um, and, and talent gravity. So I think, I think that's the focus is letting it be founder-led and, and always um, leaning back on the business model we have and how it opens the door for product innovation and to serve founders in a, in a very unique way that I think is, is more impactful and, and also, um, you know, allows us to operate pretty differently. Yeah. It's, um, it's, 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 it's fascinating. W one of your principles is this idea that, uh, where talent flows is a, is an incredible signal. Um, and if you can align dollars behind that, you know, there's a sort of alpha there. Talk about what that means practically in terms of how you think about talent flows or getting an edge in understanding where those flows are happening. I think it's a really powerful piece of our model today. And it's something that I think will get stronger over time. Um, and, and something we're leaning into you know, pretty heavily. The first thing is to set context around our investment process. So we are not a firm that has a small number of investment partners and then a large number of operating partners. And there's a wall in between and, and those two things don't, don't mix. We are not that. We are called the general partnership for a reason. And everybody on our team is incredibly senior. Everybody on our team is founder facing. In fact, everybody on our team is LP facing for our annual meeting. We had every single person on the team in the room. And as I was being asked questions, cause I was at the front of the room, just because it's, you know, you can't have everybody at the front. Uh, I found that for the vast majority of the questions I was being asked by our limited partners in our first annual meeting, I would cold call members of our team and say, Hey, you worked on this company. Why don't you share what you think? And so that's how senior they are as we put them in every room. Um, and, and they are leaders in their own right. And so those folks, they have, they have amazing networks. And so they leverage those networks to identify companies. Um, and so that's one piece of the, the talent flow is that they are in these networks and they understand them. These are folks who come from Coinbase and Robinhood and Stripe and so forth. And so we're in those networks. The second thing though is they are actively engaged with founders in very different ways than other venture capitalists. So if you're a standard venture firm, your goal is to be top of mind when one founder asks another, who should I talk to? I'm raising money. And if you can win that game, then, you know, you can, you can win the market. 
and we want to win that game. Don't get me wrong. We, we want folks to, to, you know, and we see this flywheel already with all the, you know, the, the, the SCV companies, the, the companies where the relationship started with SCV, those relationships have continued through the general partnership. And so we're seeing sort of 40 or 50% of the things we see are coming from that, those founders and, and our team. Um, but the other thing is founders will ask another founder, how did you recruit that person? How did you build that team? How did you make that technical decision or choose that stack versus this? Or how did you get in touch with that customer? How did you price your product? How did you pick the, the pricing mechanism? And in each one of those questions, the answer that should come back if we're doing our job is, well, I worked with the GP. We collaborate on this and, and this is where we ended up. Here's the thoughts behind it. And the founder owns those decisions, but, but we've been supportive there. And so I think that the model also allows for that referral source to, to flow. And, and we're seeing that. And then very specifically on talent flow, you know, we have a team of recruiters and they are talking to somewhere between 1300 and 2000 people every year. And, and they are doing that to help place people into the portfolio companies that, that we work with, where we have statements of work to help them build their teams. But oftentimes those folks are not interested in a given job because they're starting a company or their manager starting a company and they just got recruited to that and, and they're going to go there. Um, or they are not interested because their company is doing so well, they're not leaving. And, uh, or they're going to another company that they think is, is scaling quickly or super interesting. So we're getting all this signal on the market as to where folks who are incredibly talented, talented enough and experienced enough or, or successful enough that, you know, we target them as someone who could work within and help build one of the companies we've partnered with, uh, but they have other interests and their signal in those interests. And so we were able to look at that signal and to understand, you know, these, this is, these are companies that are interesting right now. Every recruiter in the market has a small list of companies that if they find someone interesting and then they see that their current job is, you know, at company X, maybe Anthropic, OpenAI today or, or others, but they just don't bother to call them because they're not leaving, right? It's just, it's sort of, I remember this when, you know, when, when like Uber from 2013 to 2015, like nobody's leaving, don't even call them, just like leave them alone. You know, maybe Notion over the last couple of years is, is in that boat and, and you see that now with the way they're scaling. Um, and so I think we can learn that signal from the market. And then, you know, eventually figuring out ways to flow capital behind that signal, um, you know, no specific aspiration for stage or, or anything else. But I think that idea of much more depth of understanding of not just who is flowing where, so it's not a LinkedIn count, but who from a quality perspective is in the top 1% of people we've spoken to this year and where are they going, right? And then allowing that wisdom of the crowd to drive the, the coarse grain filter on an investment perspective, I think is pretty fascinating, both from a thematic perspective, as well as from a, um, you know, from a specific company by company perspective. Yeah, no, that's, uh, that, that's well outlined. And, and when you say turn cost center to a profit center, what you mean is that you basically just get for that same price of hiring a recruiting team or talent team, you get special economics for it, mostly, if not all via equity, or what do you mean exactly? Yeah. So, so what I mean there is when I say turn a cost center to a revenue center, the way every other VC firm is structured, they have a fee and they have carry is profit sharing. And that annual fee is divided between all the salaries and benefits and offices and travel and everything they have to pay for. And so as a GP managing that business, you manage your services team as a cost center because every dollar you spend there is a dollar you're not spending on 
you know, your house at the Yellowstone Club. And so, so you try to minimize that cost. What we've been able to do is to say, rather than pay for services out of fee, we can create services that are so good, founders will pay for them with equity. Therefore, the more, the more service we provide, the more equity we earn. And therefore, it's an investment of the firm rather than a cost because the services drive revenue for us, meaning equity that we're acquiring. That's our job as venture capitalists is to convert LP currency, you know, fiat currency dollars into startup equity. And then the startup's job is to turn it back again into fiat currency, hopefully more of it. And what we're saying is we are going to do that. And we are a standard venture firm in terms of our organization and legal structure. The key difference is we have two paths to acquire equity in startups. We can either invest capital directly in the company, or we can invest capital into our service business. That service business can do work in exchange for equity. That equity can flow back to the firm. And so long as we're not giving away a dollar for 50 cents of equity, for our LPs, it's it's the same. It's a good deal for them. And, and then for us, it gives us differentiated access. So on our seed investments, not all of them have chosen to engage with services. I think it's about 75 or 80% have. So we're investing capital and services. And when we do that, services represents about 20% of our ownership in those companies. And that is not ownership that's available to capital. These are rounds that are fully subscribed. Syndicates are set. We couldn't write a 20% larger check and own 20% more of that company. They're, they're fully funded. But that founder wants deep engagement and support in how they build their company. They want to build it differently. And they want a faster path to turning that capital into enterprise value. And they will trade a small amount of equity in order to access the unique support that we have. And that augments our ownership and, and takes it up by about 20%. Um, same thing on the, on the later stage and where we engage with services. It unlocks otherwise locked cap tables. These are founders who do not need capital. If you have, I have examples like Collective is a company we work with. I knew Human. I saw they were doing well. I was interested in what they were building. I reached out and he gave me the typical entrepreneur response, which is great to hear from you. I'm heads down building. And I was like, okay, I get it. And then we looked at his website and he had open recs. He had open, open hiring needs on his website. And in particular, he needed some designers and product people and he needed some engineers. And so I wrote him back and I said, I get it. And we don't need to engage, but we've actually, you know, we have this guy, Josh Hernandez on our team. He built out the product and design team at Robinhood. He's amazing. Um, in his network, we have a couple people that we've already spoken to that we know are interested in what you're doing from our previous conversations. Um, we also know that they're currently loose in their job, and we could probably, you know, put them in front of you. If, and you know, if you want to hire them, you know, great. And he wrote me back and said, "Can we go for a walk tomorrow?" So we went for a walk, spent time talking about how we work, and. As part of that, I, I shared the list of people that we could put them in touch with. And this is not a Google sheet with LinkedIn links that happen to be designers. And then he can, you know, sort of good luck to him going out to get them. These are highly qualified people that we have relationships with. Uh, and we were then able to show him that list. And his response was this list. And then ultimately the people we put in front of him were better than anyone they had talked to in the last six or 12 months. And he ultimately made some hires. We built that relationship and then we were able to participate with capital as well as an extension and expansion of the service relationship around um, product and engineering as they raised their, their large round that was announced, um, I think about like seven or eight months ago. But that was all driven by unique services that 
only we can offer because we do those that work in exchange for equity. And and what that means is that our view of revenue is is not so much about profitability. It's about what is the most valuable asset in Silicon Valley. And the most valuable asset, maybe outside talent, <laughs> is is startup equity. And so we have another way to acquire that, making our services a revenue center rather than a cost center. And how do you think about pricing that in terms of equity, and maybe we could then segue into incubations and how, how, how you think about doing incubations. So the, the pricing is is always unique. Uh, every engagement is bespoke. And so, you know, just like a term sheet, you're working with the founder to figure out kind of the dilution that, that they're willing to take and the dollars they want to raise and your view of price, et cetera. That's on the traditional venture side. You're always having that negotiation. And on the services side, it's the same. We, we have a cost to deliver the service. We come to some shared belief with the founder as to the value that we're going to create if we were to deploy the service. And then somewhere in between those two things is the actual price, right? We can't capture all the value the founder thinks we're going to create because that wouldn't be good for the founder. We can't provide the service for lower than our cost because that would be bad for our LPs and we have a fiduciary duty there. And so we've been able to navigate that middle. And and it's not, um, you know, when I say a revenue center, I'm explicitly not saying a profit center. So this is not you know, looking at spending, you know, the salary of one person and then charging 10 times that in equity. Um, you know, we're, we're receiving common advisory grants. They vest over time. We have to deliver. We have a cost to deliver and we try to rationalize that conversion from our spend in dollars to our acquisition of equity in, in shares in the company. But it's not looking to take advantage or sort of, you know, hide the ball. We're pretty transparent with founders around this whole thing. Totally. Let's get to incubation. How do you think about incubation more broadly? And how do you think about it at the general partnership? It's a thing that a lot of firms are thinking about trying to do. Some are having success, some, some aren't. Let's reflect a little bit about that. Yes, yeah, so I think I think incubation is is compelling to a venture capitalist because you're you sort of you convince yourself it's proprietary deal flow is what people would call it, right? This is a, a unique way to approach the market. You get differential pricing. Um but I think all of that is problematic because it leads to sort of adverse selection. You know, when you see a venture firm uh, that is, is owning 50 or 60, 70% of the cap table um, with rare exception, the folks coming in to operate those businesses, I don't think are, are the best people in the world to operate those businesses. I also think there's a challenge in the incubation model where all the ideas come from the firm, right? Like I, I think it's sort of like, do you take the, you know, the horse or do you take the field? And I, I think I'll generally take the field and that the very best ideas come from founders and they come from, from all over the place. And the, the very best people to lead businesses tend to be the person whose idea it was to, to start it because they have sort of unique insight that they can't necessarily articulate and they certainly can't share or translate, um, transfer to somebody else to then go execute. I think it's very, very challenging. And, and so our model is actually suited to allow folks who are incredibly talented company builders to have the time and space to engage with, with companies in, in the portfolio and to support them. Um, but do that in a time limited way. And to say, this is a, this is an engagement. It lasts nine months, 12 months, 15 months. And then when I'm done with that, I'm going to be able to pick my head up and think about what I want to do next. And oftentimes they decide they want to engage in another statement of work, but sometimes they've either learned something They've experienced something through that work that exposes an opportunity that they want to take advantage of. And, and then we give them the time and space to do that. And so the first example of this was a company called Turbine One that was incubated. It was actually two builders from, from the general partnership team. 
they they had an insight around AutoML at the edge and and how to do that and in military applications. Um, and and so they they worked on that inside the firm for nine or twelve months. Then they were able to spin that out and, and raise outside capital. Um, our friends at XYZ, uh, Ross Fabini helped with that. And then um, they've gone on to to you know the beginnings of what could be real real success and product market fit. Um, behind them, we have another builder, uh, Sasha Aiken, his name. Um, he was the founding CTO of Redfin. Uh, he was the first person when, you know, we have this engineering meeting every week. It's amazing. And they're talking about sort of the things that are interesting to them. What's, what has them curious and from a technical perspective, um, and obviously LMs and sort of the whole wave that we've seen in AI has been a big area of focus and curiosity for the engineers. And Sasha was the first person that sort of raised the question when, when ChatGPT first came out in that meeting, I'll never forget. He said, right, but what happens when you insert a probabilistic reasoning engine into a deterministic code base at scale and in production? Like how, how do people deal with that? Like how do, how do engineers deal with that? How do customers deal with that? How do managers deal with that? Like what, what happens when, you know, you don't know what will come out the other side, even if you know the inputs, it creates a, a challenge. And, and so he thought that observability would become increasingly important. And so he started working on something in the sort of observability space uh, we had another uh, technical person who got very interested in the open source side of, of the models. And I think, you know, our, our general view is that open source is is fascinating in the space. And, you know, as a VC, maybe it's a little self-serving because we sort of missed the opportunity to invest in, in open AI. Like we weren't, you know, we didn't have a fund when, when we could have invested there or Anthropic, et cetera. So it's sort of uh, um, it's self-serving to look at, look at open source outside of, um, the the ability to, to deploy your model in some unique way. Um, but I think uh, we had folks thinking that as product leaders and engineers, you'll want to swap your models out and have the option to not be locked into a given model. Um, but there's a lot of second, third order effects on your data pipelines and, and how you manage um, all this infrastructure. And so they went off to build a, a company doing that. Um, and they, they've since raised outside capital. Um, and then we have, we have two other builders currently who are just at the very early stages of exploring ideas. Um, and where their, their choice is, do you want to engage in another statement of work or do you want to take some time and, and think about building your company? Um, you know, and when we do that, we support them um, with services. We can support them, you know, with capital. Uh, we do that in a market rate way. And, and so the services contracts tend to be potentially, you know, larger than, than typical, but it's not. It's not 50%. You know, our, our ownership tends to get to our core level of ownership, which is sort of in the teens, um, you know, maybe in some cases high teens, but right in there and, um, you know, support the company deeply. Uh, but as a, as an investor and, and as a, um, a service provider, not as some, you know, version of an absentee co-founder. That makes sense. How do you think about ownership in terms of how venture firms should think about if you incubate an idea, you, you help the startup, uh, you get off the ground. What's the, what's the right ownership level or, or, or special ownership level that one should get in exchange? Yeah, I don't, I don't think there should be one because the best founders, if, if you say I should get special ownership because I'm, you know, somehow supporting you in a unique way or it was my idea, God forbid, um, the, the founders should just go somewhere else, right? They, they, it's an open door. They should go and, and talk to other people. It's, you know, it's a very efficient market. And, and so I think the very best founders would take the idea, particularly if it was theirs, right? And in our case, it's always their idea. Uh, and they would take that and they would just go, go somewhere else. Um, and for us, the, the market terms that we can get, making it a core ownership position, I think is, is where we want to be. 
Um, it allows us to support that company throughout its life, you know, with, with ProRata and so forth. Um, but also we benefit tremendously from these folks focusing on new ideas, being very open and sharing that with us, you know, day to day, week to week, because it informs the way we think about other entrepreneurs that we're meeting. So for example, one of the ideas that folks were playing with internally had to do with site reliability engineering and, and what you could do uh, around incident response in site reliability, leveraging AI. And it was sort of a, they took a pretty deep dive into that. It's very interesting to understand some of the sharp edges and, and places you cut yourself as an engineer when you start trying to do that. And then along the way, I think probably four or five months after that idea had been sort of floating around and, and we were thinking about it, we met a founder who's working on something like that, but around security incident response rather than site reliability incident response. There's a bunch of benefits to that um, and ways that it reduces some of the sharp edges that we had found in site reliability. Um, and we got very interested in that and ended up partnering with that founder. And, and, you know, he's at the very beginning stages of building, but it's an amazing opportunity and one that I don't think we would have won. It was highly competitive. Um, we wouldn't have won the right to partner with that founder if we hadn't shown up with a prepared mind that we earned over the five or six months of thinking about this potential incubation idea. And I think our mindset around how we partner with folks being consistent at that very early stage, all the way up to the, the sort of series B companies, I think also allows us to have a single ethos in the market. And so founders kind of know what they're getting when they engage with us. And it, it creates a choice of how they want to build rather than a comparison between, between venture funds. That is um, w w well described. I, I want to zoom out to something we talked about earlier, which is this idea of, you know, unbundling the GP and thinking about scale because people think about it in different ways, right? You mentioned you know, go to market and talent. Some people hire um, sort of great practitioners there who can help the startups directly. Some you know will focus on on broader networks. Like I think at first round, you guys you know experimented with sort of a customer network where you could help uh, introduce your, your startups to customers. Um, of, of course, what was challenging about customers is that startups have different customers, and so you know unless you're you know. A16Z, it's hard to build sort of, you know, uh, a briefing center that can, you know, sort of take in customers for every single possible segment. So you have to tend to go down specific verticals. Um, but with talent, talent is much more fungible across different startups. But even then, you, you know, you could invest in recruiters, but you could also invest, hey, we're going to go deep on the universities, you know, like Neo ha has done or, uh, you know, uh, some dorm room fund that you guys did at first round or other things, or we're going to go th through this other sort of like, uh, talent ecosystem maybe it's alumni at, at different companies like 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 you mentioned um i mean over the past decade plus you, you've tried a lot of these different iter iterations of um building ecosystems and also having practitioners whether it's on the go-to-market side whether it's on the talent side on the deal flow side like you know the your angel track program that you pioneered at, at, at first round where have you found kind of like the best bang for your buck or what's worth doing and what's, what's not worth doing, right? We, we've run all these experiments. You did a lot of them first round, other venture firms have run them Re reflect on, uh, on what we've learned a bit. Yeah. I think, I think the, um, the, the approach where the, the victory is somehow scale, I think is, is challenged in general across these things, because back to what we said at the beginning, Startups are idiosyncratic and, and they, they're dynamic. They change all the time. And so I think to really figure out how to serve founders, you have to start with the one-to-one -one relationship, understand them deeply, and then look for ways that you can leverage either your existing networks or existing resources to create a bespoke product just for them. 
And you need to align your business model to allow you to do that. But I think outside of that, um, you know, it's very challenging to be sort of like, um, like brand advertising, like outdoor, like you bought a billboard, you maybe you saw some lift, maybe you didn't, but you don't know. Right. And, and it's not sort of that targeted, very specific thing. Um, you know, no, and, and from a customer perspective, like no one ever got their best meal at an all you can eat buffet. And so I think, I think the, the idea that, um, you, you need to be one-to-one is, is kind of my macro learning. I think you can build repeatable ways to add to the ecosystem and to participate in communities and to help individual people either access uh, knowledge or, or understanding they didn't otherwise have, help them build network that's, that's valuable. Um, and then from that, you can hope that when they are doing something where there could be economic value to you as a venture firm, they come back to you. But I think that for the most part, it's just very hard to keep track of. And people try to do things like you turn, you know, a program that supports angel investors into a scout program, because then you have this financial piece. And, and, you know, but I would argue that even the firms that run their scout programs, the best have no idea the prospects of the companies within those scout funds. I just don't, I just don't think, I don't believe that you can possibly keep track. And, and that it's just as likely that you, make your great investment in a, in a scout company as it is that you make your great investment in a non-scout company. Um, you probably have equal information, et cetera. Um, and, and so I think a lot of it was hoping for clear paths to attribution, right? If you use the advertising analogy, but the lift often was either because the market was just rising overall. And so everyone thought they were doing better. And so if we're all doing better and we're investing in all these programs, we should keep investing in programs because we're doing better. And so you had this like cycle, but actually it was just the market, right? And it's like, yeah, interest rates were zero and there was lots of money and startups were getting funded and everyone felt great. Uh, but in fact, the, and we're seeing this a little bit now is sort of back to basics. Like what really mattered then, what mattered way back when Don Valentine was, was, you know, sort of founding modern venture. And I think what matters even more going forward in a challenging environment is quality of founders, quality of, of service such that it amplifies those strengths, therefore quality of companies and building long-term compounding durable businesses. And you don't do that and you don't access those people by seeing them once at a dinner with 20 other people. Like it's just not how it works. Totally. What, one thing I suggested the other the day um, on, on Twitter that I, I think I'm going to build is a, is a book face for non-YC companies. Uh, I think I'm relishing in my sort of neutrality right right now as in not being uh, at, at a venture firm to try to launch things that maybe uh you know if a venture firm launched it would seem too biased or or not everyone would join it but more things for the ecosystem right like like products no that's right i think i think there are there are, there are many things that innovators with resource could build for the ecosystem and and they should right and i think it's i think it's great like we we hosted an event around open ai's developer uh day and we had close to 100 people in our office, got to meet some people that we didn't know before and got to reconnect with a bunch of people that, that we already knew. Um, there's probably a bunch of follow-up that comes out of that. So you're creating sort of an opportunity for those random collisions that lead to, to sort of good luck, right? You're creating your own luck. But I don't think you can sort of say, okay, programmatically, we are going to identify the top, you know, 30 people in AI and then get to know them by having some program. I, I just don't, I think it's very challenging to do that. Yeah, totally. 
What did zooming out a bit? What advice do you have for people like me um, who've were somewhat similar to position you where you were a few years ago, having spent you know many years at at a, at a firm or a career in venture, and now saying, "Hey, I um I want to start a new fund, or I, I want to be part of." And but given where the market is in twenty twenty four, or you know as we approach 20, early twenty twenty four, and given just how crowded venture firms are, you know it's daunting. And so what advice do you have or what frameworks should people be thinking about as they think about, hey, um, you know, what, 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 what does it mean to start a fund that matters in, in, in this era? Yeah, I think, I think you have to be very clear about your aspirations and how you define success and over what period of time. And that's the first thing. And I would say it's a, someone starting a company or someone starting a firm, joining a firm, you know, anyone making a career transition. And so, you know, for me, it was to have a shot and who knows if we'll get there, but, but, you know, to have a shot at building a durable and meaningful institution in this industry that I love. Um, I think that that shot was worth taking, um, regardless of how hard it would be. So I think that was the first thing. Um, you know, I, I, I look forward to being able to have the conversation with you in 10 years that you had with Chad, you know, where you say, Oh yeah, we spent the first 10 years trying to be relevant. Now we're spending the next 10 trying to win. And, you know, maybe I want to be relevant in five years and win in the next five, but it's the same idea of like, you're putting one foot in front of the other brick by brick is how you build, build the thing. And you need to focus on, on each, each moment um, rather than, you know, sort of, you don't do this because you want to make X amount of money or you want to invest in X type of company. It's just not the way, the way the motivation works. Um, so I think that's first. And then the second thing is, figuring out what you bring to the market that's unique. Because I think that in this environment, the I'm smart, I have a good network, give me money and I'll make you money is just over. Like that's not, that's not going to work. Um, I think the, the models that have worked in the past, I think also are challenged. Like I think the, the factory of venture capital is, you know, that, that assembly line. Like I think the problem with that is, Every, every company gets the same product. Like it's the Henry Ford thing. Like, you know, they can have whatever color they want as long as it's black. Like that doesn't work when founders have more choice and when the playbook versions of advice and guidance are readily available, right? Um, I would love for you to launch Bookface for everybody else, right? Because it erodes these like proprietary silos that people have. And I think that's excellent. Like founders should have more resource. They should have more information. Um, and so I think as a, as someone thinking about building a venture capital firm, you have to figure out what are you doing that's truly unique and different, both because it's more interesting to work on things that, that are, you know, dislocations in a given market and, and where you can, you can find leverage in that. But also from an LP perspective, if they want access to the NASDAQ, like they can get it. If they want access to the firm that is multi-stage, massive scalar, like, you know, maybe they can't get into the very, very top one, but they can get into the next five because those guys are all having to raise a ton of money. And, and through that, they're going to get exposure at some stage to all the top companies because the job of those firms is a coverage model. Like they have to get into every meaningful business. That's what they have to do. And so as an LP, I can get that exposure. So then it's like, okay, why do I need exposure to what you do? Like, how are you different? How are you giving me differentiation um, in my portfolio, diversity in my portfolio of venture capital firms um, and venture now as an established, you know, uh, asset class 
And it's not as big as private equity or LBOs or whatever. It's, it's, it's a small one, but it is an established institutional asset class. I think you can start as an LP, you start thinking about diversification within the asset class. And so now it's like, all right, I have my play at this style of investing. I have my index fund and the folks who put a hundred companies in a portfolio. Um, and I'm gonna make my bet there. And there's folks who do that really well. Like, you know, the box group's amazing and they, you know, they do that. But then I'm also going to want some unique exposure and point of view. And I want companies that are, that are going to offer me, uh, financial exposure to a, a more limited number of companies. You know, they're going to own more of those companies, more concentrated portfolio. Um, and or otherwise they operate differently. So they're going to, they're going to access companies in different ways. They're going to, you know, they're going to evaluate those companies in different ways. And, and then they're going to partner with those companies in different ways, which leads to a different type of referral flow and flywheel over time. And so I'm willing to make a bet that this form of differentiation is something that grows in advantage over time um, versus being tied to a single GP or, or, or otherwise is transitory. Um, and I think with what we've tried to do, that that's what we try to do is to say, you know, we access companies differently a lot through our talent network. We evaluate them differently. Like when I sit with a technical founder, I don't sit with that technical founder, do my best to take notes because I don't understand, call an engineer that I know, bastardize the story, and then have that engineer talk directly to the founder and then take that engineer's judgment as my investment judgment. Like I should or shouldn't invest. What I get to do because of our model is sit in that room with an engineer who probably is more senior than the engineering founder who's starting the company. And I get to watch that technical conversation and I get to interject when it's appropriate and ask questions about the business and sort of try to understand how the technical decisions leverage the business model and how the business model allows the technical decisions and the unique advantages, the compounding effect of that, that that founder is able to create. And then afterwards, I get to sit with that engineer who's on my team, who's an owner in my firm, who has meaningful carry in the fund and ask them what they think and why, ask them the pedantic questions that I didn't understand in that meeting and come to a very specific point of view and then leverage their network to say, who else could we talk to that's equally technical that might have a point of view, either positive or negative, who might be a customer for this, right? And that allows us to have a, a very differentiated approach to decision-making um, than others. And then on the support side, I think it speaks for itself in terms of, you know, we have a scaled team, but it's a one-to-one service delivery mechanism. So we take diverse expertise and we deliver like benchmark. And I think that that stands out as well. And so I think you need that level of differentiation so that an LP says a dollar invested here is better than a dollar invested somewhere else. Um, and I think that that's what you have to have. Yeah, let's get more granular in how you think about the talent networks in terms of when you think about the firms that you, um, you know, want to, want to be compared to the, the best sort of talent, you know, sort of networks, uh, f- firm, right. The first rounds, a six disease, et, et cetera. Obviously they have, you know, much more AUM at, at given their longevity. Um, how do you think your talent networks are are different or where have you decided to um, like really go deep in terms of your, you know, you mentioned um, companies, you mentioned some themes, um, but, but let's get more granular on what, what exactly you're doing around talent networks and, and what you're not doing. Cause you, you just, you can't do everything. You don't think, you know, those are the best places to play. Yeah. I think our talent networks are built uh, on the backs of the needs of our founders. And so it tends to be a lot of engineering product leadership hiring, which is very early. Um, the, the first engineering hire that comes in and works with that technical team of three to help really, you know, scale a company. Um, 
we, we later stage, you sometimes get into sales networks and so forth. But I think the core of our talent network is really product and engineering. Um, and the folks that are delivering tremendous impact at companies across the Valley today, um, identifying them, reaching out to them either cold or because they're already in, in a network, uh, that, that one of our talent folks has, um, building those conversations and building those relationships over a very long period of time, uh, by, by starting with delivering on and then, and then always coming back to the idea that success for the general partnership is creating the very best opportunities for the most talented people in Silicon Valley. And if we can do that on a consistent basis, whether that opportunity is working at the GP, whether that opportunity is working inside of one of our portfolio companies, or whether that opportunity is being a founder and starting a business, um, we will win in that talent flywheel over time. And so I think the way we've focused on it is recruiting of the very most talented people um, and building those relationships with the initial idea and impetus that we would place them at one of our companies. But when they are not interested in leaving their current role or they're not interested in the industry that that company happens to work in, we don't just hang up the phone and move on to the next call. We talk to them and understand their motivations and their backgrounds, the work they're most proud of, the types of things they would like to work on, um, what inspires them, et cetera. And we keep track of all of that. We have a greenhouse instance with over 110,000 people in it that we've spoken to over the last seven years. Right. And we can go back to that over and over again. We can join that proprietary data with public data about where people are and where they've gone and how come. And then we can reach back out to them and we have this ongoing relationship over time. Um, and then the root of that, the nucleus, you know, many of the people on our talent team were responsible for placing people in the best job they ever had. So when Anthony Klein, who was at Stripe from 250 or 300 people up to 3000, talks about the people that he placed at Stripe, that they helped join the business. It's an amazing group of people who had tremendous impact on that business and have gone on to have tremendous impact either on other businesses or as founders. Same thing with Josh at Robinhood, same thing with Nazi at Facebook and, and, and Uber and otherwise. Like, so we have the, the power of the, the gratitude. When, when you're a talent person, you do a great job and you place someone at an appropriate position that allows them to grow, allows them to expand their career. When you reach back out to them, they take your call, right? And so I think as long as we always orient around the talent and we optimize to create the best opportunity for those people, long, long term, that, that creates a flywheel um, that, that's really, really powerful from, from an investment perspective, but I think even more importantly, from a firm perspective as to the impact we can have on the ecosystem. Let's wrap by, by talking about the LPs because it's something you, you've thought a lot about. So obviously, you want to work with LPs whose missions uh, align with you. Um, but you also have this belief that you want to pick the right partner, you know, emphasis on the P in terms of who can really add value. So, um, how do LPs ex exactly add, add, add value in, in your perspective and, and in terms of how, how do you, you know, pick accordingly? Yeah. So our, our relationship with limited partners, I say that like we, we like to have partnership with a capital P in that relationship. We've been very fortunate to have a small number of larger LPs rather than a long tail um, of smaller checks. These are nonprofit institutions for the most part, whether they're in healthcare, education, um, and then and then some individuals, uh, but who have sort of taken the giving pledge or otherwise are supporting causes that the team generally believes in. And so the the long term interests are very much aligned in terms of when we are successful, these organizations that, that we believe in and we believe in their missions and their impact are, are successful. And that's, that's very meaningful to, to Dan and, my, and myself, but also to the whole team. Uh, so I start with that. 
But then understanding their business and having a lot of respect for what they've been able to do allows you to create a room of folks with divergent opinions potentially around time horizons for liquidity or pace of investment, um, the, the, you know, areas of interest or not, um, things that, you know, you should be investing in or you shouldn't, uh, from a firm perspective, you know, are you, are you investing in something that will compound over time? Or is this sort of a one-off opportunity, uh, in a given, either in an ecosystem with a, with a specific investment or in some things we do, you know, uh, with, with our fee base in terms of the having an office and supporting an in-person culture and so forth. Um, and so I think, I think there's divergent opinions around the table, but where we are very dedicated to the success of each individual mission. And so we can hear them in a way that aligns with their interests. And then we can weigh those things and do what's best for the firm, because ultimately that's what, that's what's best for them uh, long-term. And so the individuals that we've been able to work with, they have long history in venture. They, they share their perspective. It's very transparent relationship. They push us on things. They, they point out, you know, things they might've done differently or things they hope we do in the future. Uh, but ultimately they, they have made an investment in the general partnership and in our model. And as long as we deliver against that model and we do what we said we were going to do, I think they're very supportive uh, over a long, long period of time in, in seeing this experiment play out and, and understanding how to maximize the opportunity that, that Dan truly created with this business model innovation. You know, and that starts with, with Reed Hoffman and it runs all the way through to some of the largest university endowments in the world. And we, we couldn't be more proud to be partnered with them. But I also think their, their input is, is tremendously influential in the way we think about building the firm and super grateful for that uh, as, a, as a relationship. And I think it mirrors the way a founder would think about a great relationship with their VCs. Like these are, there's not tactical pushes or, or, you know, you must do it this way or that way. There's a perspective on the choices that we're making and the choices that we will make. And I think we take those things very seriously and we have a lot of respect for, for those opinions because um, they, they've seen more over, over a long period of time. And, and they share those opinions you know, pretty humbly given the folks we have in the room. With that sharing, I think we, we create this conversation that, that has, has been um, really rich for, for, for us as we've, as we've set out to do this very hard thing, which is you know, stand up a firm um, at institutional scale and, and then you know, try to survive in a highly competitive market, um, attracting the attention of, of kind of the unique high quality founders that, that want to build their company in this different way. Yeah. No, I love the emphasis on, on, on business model. Is there, is there any other venture firms whose business model innovation has inspired you or uh, other ideas you have around how other people you think other people should think about um, business model explorations, uh, you know, things you want to put into the, into the venture universe? Yeah, I think, I think that um, the, the transitions that we've seen in terms of operating style have been fascinating and I've learned a lot. I don't, I don't look at any of them and say, Oh, I wish I would do that. But I think um, studying them is, is really worthwhile. Um, and, you know, whether it's, you know, general catalyst now having a CEO or, or, or you know, I, and, you know, Mark and Ben is sort of like, no, we run the firm and like, that's the way it is. Um, and, and then we have this sort of almost like fund of funds of, of all these, these individual investors, um, to benchmark just being like steady and true. And like, this is the best way. And this is why, um, but I think studying all of those things is, is really critical. Um, and, and I say that inspired in part by something that Mike Moritz told me, which is his, his, he said to me in this one meeting I had with him that was really impactful was, was, um, if you're, if you don't feel that you're betting the firm, like the franchise, on something every year, then you're not pushing hard enough. Right. And I think, and they have more than anyone done the best job of that. 
And I think, I think the respect I have for what they've built over a very, very long period of time and through multiple iterations of business approach, markets they participate in, leadership, all of those things. I just think like the, the inspiration that I have is, is not to become Sequoia because nobody can do that other than them. But I think looking at the way they operate and the way they've been able to build their firm um, is something that I definitely aspire to from an operational perspective, sort of the strategy perspective. And, and that, that I think it's not to say we want to have a mega growth fund. It's not to say that we want to launch an ARC program, any of those things, but it's to say maintaining that founder mindset and that owner's mindset of how can I be better? What can I do that puts the GP in a position to be more impactful, drive better returns tomorrow than it was today? I think we all have to be thinking that way. And I think of any firm in the ecosystem, Sequoia does by far the best job of that. Yeah. That's a, it's a good note to wrap this idea of, uh, of, of betting the franchise of, of, of thinking differently. I, I've learned a lot and I really appreciate sort of the innovations on business model and product that you've, you know, had, uh, first when, when we got to know each other first round and then, uh, taken to the next level with the, the general partnership and the GP. So Finn, thanks so much for, for coming on and sharing your, your learnings with us. No, I really appreciate it, Eric. It was great to be here. Turpentine VC is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Moment of Zen and Econ 102. If you liked the episode, please leave a review in the Apple Store or rate us on Spotify. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at ericaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together.